Welcome to Business Leaders <clears throat> Podcast. We're here with Jay Arthur, president of Nowhere. He's known as the Nowhere Man in Denver, Colorado. I'm your host, Bob Rourke, and today on Business Leaders Podcast, where we interview some of the best and brightest business owners and entrepreneurs in and around the state of Colorado. We talk about the ins and outs of running a business and being an entrepreneur, insights shared by the top business leaders and entrepreneurs in the state of Colorado. We talk about what to do and, as importantly, what not to do about growing, running, or starting a business. On the show today, we're fortunate to have as our guest Mr. Jay Arthur. He's the president of Nowhere, a Denver, Colorado-based company with 21 years of experience helping companies solve problems of delays, defects, and deviation using Lean Six Sigma. He's the author of Lean Six Sigma Demystified, Lean Six Sigma for Hospitals, and QI Macros, <laughs> Lean Six Sigma SPC software for Excel. And I'm going to hold those up for you folks that actually are going to see the video. All right. There's one of those. It looks like this. The demystified version. That is not a portrait of him. <laughs> it's my alter ego is what that is. <laughs> and then here's the QI macros. So for those folks that can see it and those that can't, they'll just have to play along with the rest of the audience. <laughs> Jay, it's a pleasure to have you on Business Leaders Podcast. Hey, well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So how did you get started? Well, um, I spent uh, 21 years in the phone company building software and everything from mainframes to mini computers to microcomputers. And in about 1989, our VP of uh, technology uh, decided that he wanted to get involved with total quality management, which is the early version of Six Sigma. And so that's what we did. And it turned out it was kind of a a journey of learning how to, to make improvements. And, you know, most people think of Six Sigma. Again, it's performance improvement is really what it is, right? But the Six Sigma word came out of Motorola, right? So they invented that term. Uh, and they, over Motorola University, it says, in God we trust, all others must bring data, <laughs> right? And, and most people, I've found, you know, they get successful in business through gut feel, common sense, trial and error. And so consequently, I mean, they're, they get good at it through just nuts and bolts stuff. But to take your business to the next level, you're going to need some data about defects, mistakes, and errors, and delays, and, and deviation, which I call the three silent killers of productivity and profitability. And once you start to analyze and start to be able to pinpoint exactly what's broken and where to fix it, guess what? All of a sudden, your business smooths out and it gets better. So in, in the phone company, the odd thing was um, Six Sigma was always considered to be about uh, manufacturing, not about service industries like telephony or healthcare or whatever it is. You know, and one of the biggest complaints I get from people is they say, well, Six Sigma, isn't that just for manufacturing? And I go, uh, no. <laughs> do you have a process? Does it do things? Does it, do you have errors and mistakes and stuff? We can fix all that, right, with a little bit of data. So anyway, I got involved with that. Um, and we learned how to not successfully implement total quality management. Because <laughs> <laughs> after five years in the quality department, they shut down the quality department because most of them weren't delivering any sort of returns. Now, I, I'd been working with the head of finance, and she had this problem. All of a sudden, postage costs went up $20 million in one year. So I got a little bit of data and started to do some analysis. And I don't know if you remember back in the 90s, everybody was putting up their own little mom and pop long distance company. Mm -hmm. And so we offered to put that on our bill. Well, if you put enough mom and pop 
things on a bill, the bill increases in price by 23 cents or whatever it was back then. And so those 23 cents and three ounce rates added up to $20 million in a given year because we sent out like 20 million bills a month. Mm -hmm. We got 150,000 of them back because they had the wrong address. That's a different problem, right? So that's yeah. a that's a type of waste and rework. Mm-hmm. You know, even in my little company, we have, <laughs> we have things that come back because we don't have the right address. It's like, what? Uh, anyway, so all of these things start to add up, right? And they just devour profits. Uh, so anyway, I, I helped her figure out exactly what was going wrong with there. And we redesigned the, the bill so it was lighter weight and fixed some of those things. And then we had things like we were... Uh, doing adjustments on customers' bills for a buck or two or whatever. And so for a buck or two, we had this thing where we wouldn't let a service rep issue a, a dollar credit to a customer. Well, then what happened? Well, he had to write it all up, and then that had to go through a whole process of rigmarole, and then it had to be, you know, taken care of. And that cost $25, $50, 100 bucks to do one $1 credit. And I said, well, Maybe we could let the service reps go up to a $25 credit, you know, and if they start doing uh, nefarious things like issuing it to family and friends, we, we can go slap them, but let's not torture customers. And the other thing that happened was those customers would wait a, a month and their bill would not show their credit. And so they'd call us back, which was another 9 or 10 or $12 for the phone mm-hmm. call. So it, it, it just cascades and, you know, it's hard to tell how much your little mistake and error costs you in total. And then you lose customers and things of that nature. So anyway, so so I got involved in all of that. But then in 1995, because most of us hadn't delivered any return on investment, they shut down the quality department. And so I had a chance to either stay and work for the VP of finance or go out on my own. And so I did. When people will hear that, and, and let's say that they're in a, a circumstance, mm-hmm. and you go, I'm trying to figure out whether I want to stay or leave. What was that decision process like for you? For me, the last two years I were there was just painful to walk in the building. So easy? No, it's hard. It was impossible. <laughs> you know, they have a saying, you know, uh, hire when it hurts mm-hmm. for a company. Well, I think you know it's time to leave when it hurts too much to walk in the building. Um, but I was pretty ruthless because I knew that at some point they'd offer a management buyout and I'd get some real money to leave. And so I waited for the management buyout. And I had a friend of mine who worked at, at uh, AT&T in New York, and she told me, I know how much the price of my soul is worth. She said, five more years. <laughs> <laughs> right? And if you feel like you're paying with your soul— then it's time to leave, yeah. right? Because some part of you is nagging you to go out and try and reinvent yourself, which I decided I, I had to go do. I had to go see if I could make it happen. Now, for the next year after that, the VP of finance loved me so much. She brought me on as a consultant, paid me more money than I was paid in salary to help her solve other problems mm-hmm. throughout finance and throughout the company. So were you known as nowhere man then? No. I went out and I worked for her for, you know, about a month. I mean, a year. And then I had to go figure it out on my own. And so the next year, you know, my income fell, but I started thinking about it. Now, this was 1997. Mm -hmm. And uh, so as a programmer, you know, I knew that Microsoft Excel could start to draw some of the charts and graphs that I needed to do this total quality management stuff. And it wasn't until about that time that Six Sigma started to find its way out of Motorola, 1988. Was that the Jack Welch kind of Well, no, Jack Welch picked this up, but this started at Motorola. Uh 
You know, and the, the head honcho, I think he said, we produce a million phones and 12 of them are defective. Well, he wanted, he had all those 12 phones shipped back so they could figure out why they made 12 defective phones. He wanted to know how I can produce a million phones that always work. Zero mistakes, zero waste, zero rework, zero harm, right? Zero. You know, Crosby had that whole book about you know, zero defects, and everybody thought he was out of his mind. But I don't think he is. I think that's the new standard in America, mm -hmm. right? Um, so one of the things I've observed when I first started doing this, this quality improvement training was, you know, people said at the phone company, you know, I told my boss, well, we, we want to be better, faster, and cheaper. And he said, well, I can give you any two of the three. <laughs> yep. I can give you better and faster, but not cheaper. I can give you cheaper and faster, but not better. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry, that's no longer acceptable. Yep. Right? So Amazon... Apple and Google have taught us we can get whatever we want right now for free often, right? You want to know something? Google it, mm -hmm. right? If you want to make a phone call, make a phone call. If you want to listen to any kind of music that you've ever owned on your, on your iPhone or iPad, iPod, go for it. You can download that right now off of our iTunes store. Same thing with, with Amazon. You want to read a book? Boom, right? I can download that right now, and I pay whatever a cheaper cost than buying a printed book, and so I can get it right now, and I can start reading it right now. I want it now. Mm -hmm. So the new expectation is free, perfect, and now. That's what everybody wants. Now, if you can't deliver that, guess what? You're, you're coming in second. <laughs> you're going to always be coming in mm -hmm. second. And you can't get there on gut field, trial and error, and common sense alone. You have to start to use some data to figure out exactly where those little mistakes and errors are. And... Eliminate them from your diet. Eliminate them from your customer's experience. And so, so you were in the consulting space. Mm -hmm. You'd left AT and T. Mm -hmm. All right. You you dropped off the, Mount, mo the it most. It was actually U.S. West. U.S. WI. West. And so you were you were um, now off the favorites list. And so mm -hmm. now you had to make a run at your business and make it work. Right. So what was the biggest impediment or, or misconception about your business that kept you from really getting fired off? Um, I don't know if there was a misconception, but when you're an employee in a, in a company, somebody tells you what to do. When you own your own company and you're a sole proprietor like I was when I started, you have to tell yourself what to do, and then you have to make yourself sit down and do it. <laughs> All right? Uh, you can have one or the other, right? Right. So, you know, I've written like 20-odd books, and, and people ask me, how do you do that? And I say, well, it's BIC. BIC, it's button chair. You have to sit down and you have to write the book. And then you have to edit the book until it's readable. And then you have to find somebody to publish the book. Uh, so those are the kinds of things. Um, so when I started, first of all, I had to learn how to lead myself or manage myself, right? And, and at the time, again, Excel, Windows 95 was out. Oh, yeah. Right? I remember when Excel didn't do charts. <laughs> right. So we had Windows 95, which... Uh, Jobs always says was Macintosh 84, <laughs> and he wasn't wrong, right? And then Excel 97 came out, and I said, well, I can start to program Excel to do some of these charts. And then I started going out and doing consulting work with clients about quality improvement because that was the early days, and not everybody was a quality consultant. And um, But I would sit there with my little laptop, and laptops were very expensive back then. Um, but I had to have one, right? And so I would, I would draw a little chart, and, and, they, and people would go, that's cool. How did you do that? Where can I get that? Mm -hmm. Duh. Right? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> what do they call it? BFO, blinding flash of obvious. Right. Yes. 
Well, I go with brilliant just because yeah. blinding is a bad metaphor. <laughs> so it's a brilliant flash, the obvious, right? Um, and so I said, well, I got to turn that into a product. So I made my crappy first draft of, <laughs> of this software. And then I said, well, I have to figure out how to sell it. Well, there's the American Society for Quality. And uh, they had uh, magazines. They still produce magazines. And you could buy their mailing list. So I bought like 5,000 names. I came up with, and I started having to study direct mail because there was no internet. Mm -hmm. All this internet stuff that we all take for granted now, nah, that didn't really exist, right, in 1995, 96. I mean, it was sort of in its infancy. Mm -hmm. uh, I would hate to show you my original crappy website. <laughs> oh, my, oh, my gosh, it was awful, right? Um, but I had a website. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine nagged me into building a website. Oh, my gosh, it was awful. But I had a website. And then I started learning direct mail. So I read every book I could find on direct mail. And in direct mail, the you know, the simple answer is the headline determines 80% of your readership. Copywriting. Yep. If you get a good headline, they'll read the next line, right? And so, and then it, everything below that, right? So I, I remember I sent out, like, I think I did 100 pieces first. I folded, printed them, folded them up on my, on my kitchen table, licked them, and, and put a stamp on them and sent them out 100. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> Mom didn't even call. <laughs> <laughs> Mom did not even call. But out of that, I kept iterating until I found a headline that that worked for quality people. You know, uh, control charts for Excel or something, whatever they wanted, right? And they and so then I got like an order. Yay! <laughs> One out of a hundred, man, I was rocking, right? And so uh, I started to do that, and then I started to ship this out on little three and a half inch floppies. Yeah. I remember. Right. And I actually duplicated those on my home computer. Ooh. Ooh, living large. And so so it's this whole journey of discovery, right? And you just have to keep learning. And it's it's just like a, a, a flood of, of learning and discovery. You know, I think some people hesitate to send stuff out. But if, you know, if you don't do 100,000 pieces because you think your first mail piece is great, I sent out 100. Didn't work. But I learned something. Sent out some more. And eventually, I found things that really did work. And so it started to scale up. And then the people who were using the product gave me feedback. Well, you need to have a menu, not just control keys to run <laughs> these charts. How do I make a menu? So I had to go figure out how to make a menu that would drop down on Excel, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a way to do that. Who knew that? I had to go learn all these things. And so out of that progression, iterating the product, Iterating my marketing, I slowly ramped it up. And in, in like 1999, I think I sent out a quarter of a million pieces of mail and did almost $750,000 in business. Covered postage. And then some. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had outsourcing people who actually did the, the fulfillment for me. Uh, and then it started to grow a little bit too big to manage, right? All of that stuff all by my lonesome with just one outsourcer. And in 2001, I hired my first employee. I got a call from Adrian, who's our COO, and she left the phone company and, and you know, she wanted to know if I knew anybody that, you know, had a job. And I said, well, I might. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was painful to decide to hire that first employee. Yeah. Right, um, but that was 
the starting point, and we got an office and moved the furniture in September 1, 2001, and then 9-11 happened. And the whole country froze up solid. I mean, froze up solid for a period of time. But I just kept marching forward, and eventually America woke back up, you know. And so it, it's been an endless churn, right? So way back in the 97 and 98, right, Excel for the, the Macintosh, Excel 98, I actually built the original version of the software in the Mac because the Mac was, that's where Excel was developed originally. It was in the Mac. And so I built it there, ported it to the, the PC, and then started you know, selling both versions, although the PC outsold the Macintosh uh, 99 to 1 for the last 15 years. In the last few years, is the Mac has risen. So mm -hmm. it's about 10% of the business now, which is a you know testimony to whatever's going on <laughs> out there in terms of people using the Mac. But, you know, the Macintosh is also starting to have its little glitches. When you go in and they file an insurance claim, well, it has to go out to an insurance company. And when it goes out to the insurance company, sometimes it bounces right off because you haven't filled in all the blanks. Mm -hmm. Well, that's an IT problem. We ought to be able to fix that. Then it gets in there, and sometimes it's fine, and it goes right through. And then at other times, it goes into uh, some analysis, and then you have to respond to their analysis, right? And if you don't respond in a period of time, then it gets rejected, and so you end up with lost money. And they were losing a little over a million dollars a year, about 12 million bucks a year in denied insurance claims. So I sat down and we started doing some um, just data analysis on denied insurance claims. They had 47,000 different kinds of rejected for this or that or the other thing, or they bounced off. And, and so we did an analysis on all that. And it turned out that one insurance company, so I had to drill down, so why weren't Mm -hmm. Right, And so we, we use what's called a Pareto chart. And the Pareto chart helps you narrow your focus to the one thing you want to do. And, and for, the, for the uninitiated, Pareto? Yeah. Pareto? Yeah. So most people have probably heard of Pareto's principle, of, for Vilfredo Pareto, that 20% um, of what you do causes 80% of your mistakes, errors, waste, rework, and lost profit. Same thing on the other side. 20% of your customers account for 80% of your revenue. So you just spend more time with those 20%. Uh, but I also found that Pareto's law is also a power law. So it applies within the 20%. So as little as 4% of what you do produces over half the mistakes, waste, rework, lost profit. 20% of the 20%. 20% of the 20%. 80% mm -hmm. of the 80%. 64. But mm -hmm. I, 450 just sounds better. Oh, yeah. Um, and so if we can use data to narrow down and pick that one thing that's really going wrong, we can fix that. And so in their case, right, we had this nice chart of a million dollars a month going down the toilet. And so then we looked at, <laughs> we split that out. Why is it going down the toilet? Uh, well, about two-thirds of it was for timely filing. We're just not getting it filed in a reasonable length of time. Okay. And so then we drilled down into timely filing. Well, it turns out one insurance company was two-thirds of the timely filing denials. And so it was a function of they weren't living up to the contract and Centura wasn't doing everything it could do to make sure all that stuff went through. So uh, I did the data analysis in a, in a few days. Now, I've actually changed the software so I could do the same thing I used to do in like 30 seconds instead of two to three days because I was still figuring out how it all worked. And so I figured that out. We got a team together. The team looked at that and said, oh, well, 
Number one, we need to go fix the contract. Number two, we can change how we do all this stuff. And guys, in the background, that's the daily fire department going by. Uh-huh. They're not coming to get us. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> we won't be arrested yet yeah. um, for talking about Lean Six Sigma. Um, so anyway, the uh, out of that, they figured out how to fix it on a Friday afternoon, started the, the manual change on Monday, saved $5 million a year. Found money. Found money. And then we found some other ones where they had misread it. There was another $24 million that had been miscoded as not paid. And so we figured out, well, you need to code it correctly so that we know that we got paid for it. And then there, you know, we started working through some of the other things. So um, I helped them find the money money. But if you think about it, just like the phone company with 150,000 bills returned. Well, if we fix all of that, they'll stop coming back. And we'll stop issuing things to chase down non-payment. And we'll, all of this churn will stop. And the same thing would happen uh, with the healthcare system, right? If, if we could just get those transactions, those things to go through whoosh, the first time, if they just slid right in, if we so changed all the— would this also apply to individual physician practices? Oh, Sure. I mean, that sounds like a stupid question. And for, for those that are watching on TV, <laughs> I'll hold the book up again on the hospitals for you physician right. practices out there. Well, you know, physicians have the same problem. Or they don't actually bill for the things they've given a patient. Or, you know, so if you look at the amount of, well, we, we have all these drugs that we buy, but we're not billing for—we're only billing for about two-thirds of the drugs. Mm-hmm. Or, and then other hospitals have seen things where they had all these cardiologists and they had four or five different kinds of stents, you know, and some of them were very expensive, some of them not so expensive, some of them were better in terms of how they performed than others. And for a lot of these hospitals, they just said, well, I'm going to narrow it down to these two because they're affordable and they work better. And you should hear the physicians, the doctors scream, but we have data that proves Mm -hmm. that, you know. And every year we go to this uh, improvement conference, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in Orlando in December. It's going to be coming up on the— And you and what other guy goes? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Lots of them, right? Because these are all the chief medical and chief nursing officers mm-hmm. of all the hospitals in America that want to improve things. Mm-hmm. Now, they've been meeting for 28 years. I, I, will, I will offend a lot of people here, but healthcare has been admiring the problem. Yes. Admiring the problem. You've got to do something. But when you don't have any real competition because you're not really competing too much for with other hospitals or whatever, um, y- you can kind of be sloppy. Mm-hmm. So here's some bad news. Now, these are the numbers that we know. In 1999, To Error is Human came out, which said we kill 100,000 people a year unnecessarily in the, the United States. We've gotten much better at measuring. So it's somewhere between 250,000 and 500,000 people a year killed unnecessarily through healthcare. Um, that makes it the third leading cause of death in America behind heart disease and cancer. So this is massive, right? It's like three 747s a day crashing full of patients, right? But because it happens here and there and everywhere throughout 6,000 hospitals and thousands of individual surgical centers and, you know, and you see things like uh, one of my favorite comedians, Joan Rivers, died due to a medical mistake, right? And you keep hearing these things, but uh, nobody kind of steps up the fact that, hey, this has got to stop. You know, and, and I think it's not necessarily that the physician's incompetent, but the process. It's always the system. The system yeah. allows them to fail. Yeah. 
Now, we have certain exemplar hospitals like Virginia Mason up in Seattle, and they have patient safety alerts and anybody can call one. And when they initiated this like 10 years ago, this one nurse said, you cannot do this oncology treatment without doing this other stuff first. And this physician went out of his mind. And, and she, she called him on it. And the leadership team came down and said, no, you're wrong. You have to do these things in this order before you give them this, this oncology medicine. End of story. And, of course, the leadership team supporting the nurse over the doctor was a massive brain shift, right? Yeah, the nowhere man thinks about how do we change the software in here to get the outcome out there. Before we go too far, (laughs) the nowhere man, genesis of the nowhere man. Uh, Back in in 1990 and 91, besides total quality management, I studied neuro-linguistic programming uh, with uh, Steve and Connie Ray Andreas, who were up in Boulder. And just learning how to run this thing, right, and clean up the limiting beliefs— you know, talk about one of the things that was probably most helpful for me was um, at that time was to go in and get rid of all the limiting beliefs I had about all kinds of things. Could be starting businesses, marriage. I mean, you know, that wife of mine, and then you discover, no, that that was me. All right. Well, that boss of mine, well, no, that's how I think about it. Right. And when I change how I think, then all these people respond to me differently. Hmm. How did that happen? And so NLP was about neuro-linguistic, what we say to each other, programming. Programming, oh man, that works for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? So it's software for your mind. And then out of that came the whole idea of knowledge where or just nowhere. And so one of the things that concerns me a lot in the Lean Six Sigma world is we have these four, two-week and four-week trainings become a green belt or a black belt. Right, and, and I talked to a lot of these people, and some of these belts have been trained, but they don't know what to do. Right, they got the certificate, but they don't have the how-to. Uh, I don't know how they missed it, but I think part of it is we teach them way too much stuff. And so I've again found that the 450 rule, as I call it, Pareto's rule applies in knowledge. You do not have to know everything to do anything. You only need to know a little bit of stuff. And you don't need, you know, stuff to teach you crazy things. It's like when my my dad was out one day when I was a kid and he was hammering something together and I want to learn how to hammer something together. He did not go into a discussion of physics and force equals mass times acceleration and and diagrams and formulas. And he, he didn't do all that. He just gave me a couple of junk pieces of wood and a nail and taught me how to do this. And if it bent, you pulled it out and then you started again, right? And so very quickly, I learned how to hammer two things together, right? And I would, I would watch him change plumbing and watch him do this or watch him do that. And then he'd have me do it and I'd, I'd be pretty good at it. I didn't know everything there was to know, but I knew how a hammer worked. And so if there minimum, were a big- Minimum viable product. Yeah, I got exactly. something done. And, and I think we teach too much about that. So that's why I talk about the, the magnificent seven tools of Lean and Six Sigma, right? Here's the advanced technology for Lean. Oh, th- this is for those at home and It's watching. a post-it note. It's a post-it, this, yeah, about a quarter inch, so you can get a, f- a few thoughts down. And yeah. if you were to look around the office uh, and around, <laughs> it's, it's like a blizzard. There are post-it <laughs> notes in everywhere. 
you know, but that's a very powerful way to organize things and to figure out the flow through your process, if that makes any sense. So when you figure out the flow through your process, um, most people make the mistake. They look at their employees and go, well, so-and-so's lazy. Not a chance. The thing going through the process, the product, the patient is lazy. If you watch the thing going through the process, it sits around for a while, twiddling its thumbs, goes out to lunch, goes out for coffee. It's waiting for the next step in its process. And so when you collapse all the delays in between things, all of a sudden you don't pick things up, put them down, pick them up, put them down, pick them up, put them down. You can't make a mistake. You can't get things out of order. You can't miss a step. And so when you get all that delay out of the process, you become infinitely faster. And I have never failed to have a, a team diagram a process and not cut 70, 80% of the cycle time out of it. I worked with one uh, aircraft manufacturer and their cycle time for uh, a part to do an, a request for proposal was industry standard 1.9 years. And I got them down to 40 days. So this is the kind of thing if, uh, so we don't need exotic, you don't need to know everything there is to know about a value stream mapping, or you just need to know the essential tools. Can okay, you write it down on a sticky note and organize it? Yeah. And it doesn't take people centuries to do this, right? Weeks at a time. You get them together for an hour, and they can come up with the current state and the future state and go, why didn't we think of that? Well, you haven't bothered to look at your process for a while, mm -hmm. right? So uh, I think uh, we've made the mistake of making it too hard. So I mean, that's why I built that, uh, this uh, Lean Six Sigma Yellow Belt training, which is just kind of a um, eight hours of, of quick videos about how to do uh, the basic improvement tools, the Magnificent Seven tools. And for anybody who's listening, it's lsyb.com. It's free. Now, if you want to take the Say test. Say that again. One, one it's one. free. No, not that part. <laughs> the site. <laughs> it's lssyb.com okay. for leansixsigmayellowbelt.com. So okay. shorthand. Uh, but the idea here is then if you want to take the test and get a certificate, I'll charge you for that. But I, back in 2011, I set this big, hairy, audacious goal. All right. And so we have green belts and black belts and master black belts and Oh my gosh, it's, it's, so the one thing I didn't notice were money belts, people who could actually use the tools to save money. Uh, and because of the QI macros, I sit at this weird confluence where I talk to a lot of people and the more things they told me about their, all the little letters after their name, the more I knew the next question was gonna be silly because they just didn't know where to start because we teach them too much stuff and then they get cluttered and they don't know where to start. Um, so. I just want to, I set this big, hairy, audacious goal. I'd like to have 100 million money belts worldwide using the tools of quality. So how do I do that? Well, I have to give away the training. Now, I can't give away the software, but I have to give away the training. Mm -hmm. But you can try the software for free for 30 days from the website. So um, that's one of my goals. Now, why would I want to do that? Because I would like to create a hassle-free America. Mm -hmm. I don't know about the rest of you, but every time... You know, I, I go out to, to eat, I have to check my bill, or every time I go through a drive-through uh, window at a, at a restaurant, I have to check and make sure I got all the tacos I ordered. I mean, what is that all about? Why does my uh, iOS phone have to, my Apple phone have to update its operating system every 24 seconds and waste a day of my time? You know, I'm, I'm a very slow follower of technology. 
I firmly believe that software does not release. It escapes. <laughs> Truth. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, you know, when they went from iOS 9 to iOS 10, it nags me all the time to update my, my iPhone. And I said, well, you just would jump from 9 to 10. That's a big jump. I bet it's crap. So, uh, <laughs> and then it, now they're telling me 10.1's out. Well, maybe about 10.2, I'll think about wasting the time and energy it and takes. They, and to they do that. nag you to update. It just makes me nuts. Yeah. Let's say I'm a prototypical company, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And I'm thinking, you know, I got some data. I got some stuff on a spreadsheet, you know, and I've got a hole in my bucket. And I can't quite figure out right. the hole in the bucket. So how would I know that I would qualify to be a potential client of yours? <clears throat> okay. Well, I think that, you know, on the on the wider scale, everybody tends to keep a lot of data about how they perform, but nobody does any analysis of how they perform. Tons of data, no analysis. Mm-hmm. So Rudyard Kipling had this uh, saying that, uh, I had six serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and where and when and how and why and who. So if you keep track of the type of defects you're, you're making, you go, when did that happen? What happened? Where did it happen? How did it happen? How much did it cost to do that? Who was involved? If you keep that kind of transactional data about mistakes and errors, then I, I added this to the, the software. The data mining wizard will take that and turn that into Pareto charts and drill down and say, it's over here. <laughs> this is where it is, right? Mm-hmm. And I used to spend hours and sometimes days doing that. And then I said, well, I can make the software do this. Because I'm lazy. I don't want to have to do that, right? I don't want people out there to have to do it. I used to spend a long time trying to teach people how to do this. Not if I can build it into the software. And we're the only software that does this because we think about things a little differently than everyone else. The idea is if you have that, sometimes, you know, if, if a defect happens often enough, your, your five senses will notice it. Mm-hmm. But if it only happens once in a while... Right? If you think about the typical batter uh, in baseball, you know I think um, if they're batting over 270 or something, they get a hit like once every two weeks or something. It's, it's, some, it's some ridiculously high number. And so if you don't really track when they got a hit and when they didn't get a hit, guess what? You, you, you wouldn't even notice that they were batting 270 and somebody else was batting 230 and you didn't want to hire them <laughs> for your team, right? That's the whole book Moneyball was mm-hmm. about that whole idea of, of well, these people have a tendency to get on base. That's what matters, not hits, on bases. Mm-hmm. And if this guy can walk every time he gets up to the plate, you're in, right? And that's how the Oakland A's developed such a successful team for several years until everybody else figured out they could do the same statistical analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very interesting. You know, in sports, we track all these things, defects, mistakes, errors, uh, you know, fumbles, pass interceptions, uh, penalties. And yet in business, people don't want to think about that too much, right? They're a little afraid of it. We we talked a little bit before the show, and, and, and we were talking about some of the things that you've got going on, mm-hmm. and I think it segues into what you were talking about. And it was um, turning data into dollars, yeah. which is 
what the A's did right. and some others. So let's jump down that road. Okay. You know, I think there's a there's been all this hype about big data. And so I always think you can get big profits from small data. Because in my experience, you know, it doesn't take a billion records to figure out that I've got a problem somewhere. Uh, I actually, in software, I came up with a concept I called the Dirty 30 process for Six Sigma software. If you take 30 of the worst of a certain type of transaction that's always erring and failing, and you figure out, go in and reverse engineer how it got there, a Pareto pattern will leap out of it in 30 to 50 records. I don't need all the data on the planet. 30 is statistically representative. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, with Centura, we had 47,000 records, which fell into, <laughs> that went into a lot of different buckets. Mm -hmm. But we were able to pinpoint exactly what to fix. So you don't need the big, you need the small. And a sample, the Pareto pattern will show up in the small sample as well as the big. Um, and I think the thing about big data is most companies were looking at how to figure out how to sell more nuanced, niche things to more niched audiences, mm -hmm. right? So it was all about sales. And there, there's a uh, TED talk about, this woman talked about, in 2015, uh, Americans spent $122 billion with a B on uh, big data. Mm -hmm. But only about a quarter of that actually had some sort of return on investment. Yikes. Now, from a Six Sigma standpoint, that's a one Sigma performance level, and, and you should be shot and fired for malpractice. <laughs> Drawn and quartered. Drawn and quartered. Um, so if you have data about mistakes and errors and waste and rework, if you feel like you have too much crisis management, if you feel like you do too much firefighting, guess what? It's a symptom, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I can always tell when I go in to train a, a company somewhere that I can tell where they are just by how many times the people in the room have to get up and leave to answer some sort of fire during the course of a one-day training. Mm -hmm. Some places, it's pretty calm. And other places, it's like, bing, 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 mm -hmm. right? And so I just kind of tell them that. And... You know, Duran, one of the godfathers of quality, said that if you aren't doing anything to manage this, you're probably throwing away a third of your total expenses fixing stuff that shouldn't be broken and trashing stuff that you can't fix. A third. Well, if you could cut your costs by a third, what would that do to your profit margin? Boing. Mm -hmm. What would that do to your customer satisfaction? Boing. <laughs> what would that do uh, to your ability to attract new clients, right? Because, hey, we're just better than they are, right? You know, even, even I see this. I mean, everybody kind of loved Apple products over PC products because PCs were hacked more often. But Apple's gotten a lot looser since Jobs left. And each new release of, of their stuff seems to be a little bit more iffy than it used to be. And so I'm not sure that the quality of what you see in an Apple product is staying up, as seems to be falling. And then, and even Excel, Excel used to come out with a, a release and then three-point releases over three years. Now they're doing an update about once a month or once every two weeks. And, and so it's, you never can tell if the thing that comes out this week is going to work, it's just it just drives me crazy. So you so going back to that 
you've got this, if folks are interested in the turning data into dollars, which right. is turning data into dollars.com, right. what should they expect to see there and what's the benefit to them? Right. Um, well, if you go out to the website, um, you can download my free special report. It's called, uh, If It Wasn't on Fire, You Wouldn't Have to Put It Out. Right? So all this firefighting, if it wasn't on fire, you wouldn't have to put it out. So you get that report for free, and then there's a series of three videos that talk to you about uh, how this all works. And then if you want to, you can actually uh, sign up for our learning management system and get our our new edition of the software, which we call Chart Smart Excel, which will help you do all this stuff, all this data mining automatically. Right? I just I don't want to train people on how to do this if the software can do it for you. Uh, so that would be a place to go learn more about this concept. And one of my my big concerns is Six Sigma is moving so slowly um, that it's never going to catch fire. So what we have to do is scale down what we're teaching to the things that'll solve most business problems. If you look back at when American Society for Quality was implemented, about a third of the, of the nation were manufacturing, a third were um, service industries. And it turned out that we really, the quality community really focused on the manufacturing side. Well, manufacturing employment is 11%, service employment is 80%. Where's the opportunity for improvement? It's in the service industries, right? And service industries often say, well, I'm not sure that, man, that, isn't that Six Sigma stuff just for manufacturing? Well, no, <laughs> right? Business processes are universal. The thing going through the process is different. Now, it might be a patient, it might be a carburetor, it might be a piece of software, it might be telephone service, but the thing going through the process is the same. You know, I, I think about as we've been going here, and I've been remiss, mm -hmm. so folks are, I'm in. Yeah, I need to talk to them. Mm -hmm. How do they find you? How do they reach out to you on social media? Right. So I'm on LinkedIn, Jay Arthur, the nowhere man, right? And then we have Twitter feeds for QI macros and um, and for turning data into dollars. And so all of those things exist out there, so you can go find us out there. Um and then you can come to the website. It's actually qimacros.com, Q-I-M-A-C-R-O-S.com, which is where the existing software is. And then the whole new thing, I'm coming up for the, the average Joe or Susie. Now, we have all the green belts and black belts. I want no belts to be able to do this. And I want no belts to become money belts. Right? I think every business wants people who can solve problems with data. And if you become one of those people, you become indispensable, a linchpin, if you will, in, in your company. And people will come to you and go, what do I do here? Right? And you want that, right? Because <laughs> that'll always be something that's invaluable, I think, in a company. To find those insights. You talked earlier about you know, insights for action. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of data analysis going on, but most of them don't have the insight. But what this process will do is give you the insight. What do I go fix to cut my costs, to boost my profits, to increase customer, employee, and everybody else's satisfaction? That's what we want. You know, we, we talked a little bit before, and you know, and, and the, the entire world's out there either getting emailed or texted or right. something in a marketing piece right. comes in your inbox. And I think about the generators of that kind of information. Mm -hmm. And I think, in my mind, many of those guys are looking for a clue. Right. Jeez. And so how would, you know, as a hypothetical, how would you see your software fitting into that arena in, in the marketing space or social media space? 
So if, you, if you're using a Google AdWords account, so we had this thing where, right, you were going along doing pretty good on Google AdWords in terms of sales and revenue, and then they released some change of their algorithm and Penguin, and all of a sudden, boom. That was lower, by the way, for those that can't see. Yeah, that was lower. <laughs> uh, and so when Google decided to drop their sidebar ads mm -hmm. and just go to a mobile-friendly ads in the front, then your web listing of things, ads at the bottom, uh, our traffic went kachunka. But guess what? We noticed that just because, just because we were tracking it using what's called a control chart, right? And so we can track that. Now, can we start to see other trends? So we actually looked at other trends like SPC software has been trending downward. Six Sigma has been trending downward. So we can watch what's trending uh, through Google Analytics, through all these different kinds of things, and, and start to do some Pareto analysis. Same sort of thing with a keyword search, mm -hmm. right? If you just go into Google and you start typing, um, you know, Six Sigma software, It'll keep giving you listings of top things that people are searching for. Well, you can go out and start to figure out, oh, there's, you know, maybe maybe they're not searching for this. They're looking for a way to do that. Uh, I have a friend who teaches uh, decision making. And I said, well, have you tried using a keyword like, my boss is an idiot? And we typed that into Google, and Google came up with all the same things, and, and we figured out well, how many times people were searching for that. My employees are idiots. Okay, well, I can help you with that because we teach decision-making, right? The idiocy factor seems like it's a, a mm -hmm. thing like that. And so you can start to do the same sort of analysis uh, on all of your, your website traffic, right? Because it's a thing going through your process, mm -hmm. right? And you can start to notice when it's doing that, going up or going down. Is it varying too much? Is it varying too little? So... And then when you plug in a new keyword, does it do anything? If you get crickets, let's take that, <laughs> let's take that keyword phrase on it. Yeah, I think anybody that's been around has had crickets <laughs> before. <laughs> you know, and we're kind of coming to the end of this, this segment of the show. And, you know, one of the things, you know, you have a lot of experience and in, in mileage. Mm -hmm. Parting piece of advice you might offer. My parting piece of advice is I think people tend to focus on increasing profits by increasing sales. If you look at how much money we spend on sales training every year, you know, it's probably 100 and I forget it was $160 billion or something on sales training every year. But how much money do you spend on figuring out how to analyze and reduce your costs? Mm -hmm. And if you spend a little more time over on the cost side by reducing those costs and reducing the firefighting and reducing the overtime and reducing the complaints and reducing um, the credits and adjustments and things that you have to give to customers because your, your process stinks, guess what? All of a sudden you free up more time and you start to be more innovative. You can come up with better ideas and better solutions, right? Focus on the business instead of in the business. <laughs> yeah, and, and so when you're firefighting, you can't think creatively. You're problem solving all the time. Let's narrow that problem solving down to the key things, the four things out of 100 that are producing over half of your waste, rework, lost profit, and, and anxiety. And once you do that, your business will smooth out. You'll sleep at night. As a small business owner, you don't sleep a lot of nights because you're worried about something, right? I like to sleep at night. That's you know, and, and you have the, the website for free. Yeah. 
You know, and, and let's repeat it for those that weren't paying attention right. earlier. Right. So lssyb.com. Yeah. And so that helps. Right. Uh, you know, and you can go through mm-hmm. and check it out. Mm-hmm. Anything I, I'm sure there's a lot I failed to ask. Well, you know, I think Seth Godin gave me that idea, which was when he released the book uh, Idea Virus, which I recommend to anybody to read because that is probably the best book on marketing I think I've ever read. Um, but he gave it away for free online. You're doing what? He gave it away for free online. So if you can figure out how to have something for free that leads you to fee, that leads you to higher fees, that leads you to more stuff, that leads you to more exotic things, I really, that's kind of my model. All right. I give away the training very often for free online, but I sell you software to help you do it because you can't do it without the software. So it's a different model. There's a book called Free. I think um, the whole idea is the world's going for to free, mm-hmm. right? Bandwidth going to free. You know, computers, you know, my son-in-law works for IBM and for a while, and then he got out of it because you just can't sell hardware big enough, right? Because every year it doubles in power and halves in cost. Well, I can't keep my sales numbers up mm-hmm. if it's doing that every month, every 18 months. Yeah. It's very difficult. So how can you figure out what game you want to be in and how can I help people step into this new process, this new idea, this new way of thinking, this new whatever? Is there something I can give them for free that'll get them started and then I can sell them the rest of this stuff? That works. Yeah. Jay, I tell you what, this, this has been fun. I've, I've enjoyed it, and I had the script, and we just basically threw it in the trash can. <laughs> we just <laughs> like, we're done, and we'll just talk about this. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning. Yeah, well, and, thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate it. All right, thank you so much.